So I, I actually wanted to take a little less time on the sheer and a little more time maybe on discussing sort of the events that we're experiencing. I think we can all agree um, that what has happened over the last few weeks on so many different levels, first of all, has been overwhelming. Um, it is a watershed moment, uh, certainly in 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 the state of Israel's history, I would say in Jewish history, I even think in world history. We'll get to that. But let's first just share a few thoughts on how we're meant to understand this. First of all, you know that I don't think that, that anything is accidental. I don't think Judaism thinks that anything is accidental. And the fact that this all started on Simchat Torah, as we enter the parashiot of Breshit, and specifically now that we're beginning sort of going deeper into the stories of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Uh, so since I was asked to share some thoughts, I thought that that would be a good uh, topic to explore this. Um, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are not only um, sort of the forefathers uh, alongside the foremothers of the Jewish people, they're also the paradigm for any and every experience. Um, and just to explain that, because some of us have discussed this before and some of us have not, um, it's worth taking a moment to understand the difference between these three giants. Avram represents the concept of beginning, right? He comes on the world scene by storm. He is in so much motion. He he leaves everything behind, comes to Israel. There's a famine. He goes to Egypt. He becomes wealthy. He comes back to Israel. He's fighting wars. He's rescuing his nephew. He's the binding of Isaac. There's a lot going on with Avram. Enormous energy. He represents the energy of beginnings. In addition, there are two more facets of the story of Avram that bear direct sort of mention when it comes to what we're experiencing right now. The first is that Avram is the paradigm of chesed. Um, every one of, really, all of the major characters in, in the Torah and the Tanakh and Jewish tradition bring sort of a particular character to bear in the world. David, King David, brought royalty into the world. Yaakov brings Tiferet. Avram brings chesed. Chesed is loving kindness. And so it's interesting that Avraham who is the paradigm of loving kindness, fights what appears to be the first world war. That's number one, chesed. Number two, Avram introduces us to the concept of a nisayon, to be tested. Now, it's interesting, Adam and Chava were tested, right? God says not to eat from the tree, and they do, they fail, right? Um, Noah was tested, he was told to build an ark, he succeeds. It may well be that he was given the opportunity to save the world and he fails. But in neither of those instances is the word Nisayon used. They're not called tests. The first time we find the concept of a test is by Avram. Right? In the actual Torah itself, it says, Elohim Avraham, and God tested Avram with Yakeda, which means that's the paradigm of what a test is. But the rabbis sort of expand on this. Uh, Mishnah Pirkei Avot, in the fifth chapter of Ethics of the Fathers, says that Avram undergoes 10 different tests, and he succeeded, he stood by all of them. So it's interesting, what is it about Avram that relates to tests, and, and, and how do we understand within the context of Chesed and Avram's fighting wars what a test is? So the truth is, the real definition of a test, you know, some of us had this discussion, maybe some of you heard the Parsha Shir that I gave to the Oraita boys last week, um, but this past week in Parsha Lech Lecha, uh, there's an interesting detail that, that not everybody pays attention to. We're all busy with the journey of Abraham and all of the big things that happen. There is a world war. There are four kings. One of them is Amraphel. The Medrash tells us Amraphel has another name. That's Nimrod. Some of us will remember the name Nimrod because that was apparently the nemesis of Abraham. Those of you who remember the legend of Abraham sort of being being put into a furnace and surviving, and this was like a great miracle. Um, the, the king who Avram opposed uh, because Avram felt that his pagan idolatry was false, 
was Nimrod. In fact, Nimrod is so named from the word Mered. Nimrod causes the rebellion against God in the world. So Avram and Nimrod are nemeses. And Nimrod is the one who starts this war. And the four kings, including Nimrod, including Amraphel, uh, Kedal Omer, they win the war against the five kings. And those of you who know Tanakh know that as a result, uh, the Sodomites are taken captive and amongst them Lot. There's an interesting discussion in the Medrash um, as to whether this was an accident. The Medrash implies, rabbinic tradition implies, first of all, there's a, there's a, there's a rabbinic legend that Lot looked very much like Avram. And therefore, there's a theory in the Medrash that, that Amraphel, Nimrod, captures Lot either because he knows that he's related to Avram or perhaps even because he thinks he's Avram. So this war is about much more than just conquest. There is some sort of a battle, a culture battle, a spiritual battle between the forces of Nimrod, of evil, of idolatry and paganism, and the world of Avram, of Chesed. And it's interesting that this world war is considered one of the great tests of Avram. Why? Because a true test, right, when, when this story of this world war begins, um, a, a palit, a refugee, this is actually the first refugee, it's a big debate who this fellow was, what was he a refugee from? Um, Pshat would see in the contextual understandings, he was a refugee from the war. The rabbis say he was a refugee from the flood, he was one of the giants, I won't get into that story. He comes to Avram, and he tells Avram that Lot has been taken captive. And when he addresses Avram, it says, He calls Avram the Ivri. Now that's a fascinating word. Ivri in English is the word Hebrew. And in fact, we are still called the Hebrews. In fact, this becomes the name of Avram. So the first question is, what does that word mean? Why are we called Ivrim? Second of all, why does this appellate first appear in the context of a world war? So the Medrash in, uh, on this parsha in Breshit and Simon Membet, uh, the 42nd chapter of the Medrash Rabbah, the Medrash lists three reasons for why Avram was called an Ivri. The first is because he's descended from Aver. And whether he was literally descended from Aver or whether he is, uh, he studied in the yeshiva, there was supposedly an institute of the study of monotheism that Avram attends, whether that's literal allegorical is an interesting question. It's called the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. Aver was Shem's great-grandson. They were um, the only individuals promoting monotheism in the world, and Avram spiritually descended or physically descended from them. Okay, now that makes sense, but why would Avram then be called an Ivri? There are two problems here. The first problem is, usually there's a Gemara that says that katan gadol, you always, um, the, 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 the smaller is always dependent on the greater. For example, uh, Rav Nevensal in one of his Sichot points out that when Avram comes to Canaan initially at the beginning of last week's portion, it says that he brings with him Sarai, and she's called Eshet Avram, the wife of Avram, and Milka, right, who was the daughter of Haran. Now, Sarai and Milka were sisters. That's clear in the Torah. So why was Milka called the daughter of Haran, and Sarai was not called the daughter of Haran? Because Haran was not as great as Sarah, right? You wouldn't say that this is, uh, that Obama is the son of Obama's dad. You would say that dad is Obama's father because he's a president and his father wasn't and so on and so forth, right? Uh, when you talk about Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, who's the Rosh Hashiva of Gush now, he's known as Rav Lichtenstein's son, right? Nobody called Rav Lichtenstein his father. So it's interesting that Avram would be called an Ivory when Avram was clearly greater than Avram. So Rav Nevenzel says that can't therefore be the best reason. He's the given. second reason that's given is He's that Avram Ivri because he comes from across the river. Now that's interesting. If that's true, why would that be mentioned here in the Battle of the Kings? We know Avram comes from across the river, presumably the Euphrates, because the beginning of last week's portion tells us that Avram comes from the land of, you know, Ur, Kazdim, etc. He comes from across the river. Even more interesting, if you look in the book of Yoshua, the book of Joshua, when Yoshua uh, 
speaks to the people after the land has been inherited and conquered, he's giving them this inspirational speech. And twice he mentions that your forefather Abraham came from across the river. Why is that geographical detail so important? Why is this mentioned? So that leads us to the third opinion, which I think is more of an explanation of the second, which is Avram isn't just from across the river. Avram is from across the world. The whole world is on one side and Avram's on the other. And Avram is called an Ivri because a Jew needs to understand that he is always going to be on one side with the world with a different perspective. There are very few times in, in our history, recent history, where this is more obvious than what's going on today. Avram is the Ivri. We are called Ivri. If you were a Russian Jew during the 70 years of communist occupation, you had stamped in your passport Ivre. Same name we still carry. Our language is Ivrit, Hebrew, because a part of who we are is that we're, we're, we're across the divide. We take a position that is very often at odds with the entire world. It's an interesting point. Now, it doesn't end there because not only are we across the divide sort of in our thoughts and perhaps our philosophy, um, it, it gets much more intense than that. One of the, um, the ways in which a Nisayon reflects itself, a test, right? A real test is when you have to do something which is actually against your character. The fact that Avram has to fight a war when he is the paradigm of loving kindness. You know, this is not uh, Arik Sharon fighting a war. This is Mother Teresa fighting a war. If, if you came across Mother Teresa and she was engaged in mortal combat, you would look at this like, it just it's beyond your perception. Mahatma Gandhi in a knife fight. You just wouldn't anticipate that. So the fact that Avram is willing to do something which is totally out of character for him is what makes it a Nisayon. It's almost that the root of Nisayon is a nace. There's something miraculous about the fact that a human being can go so against the grain of his nature for an ideal that he believes is more important than himself, right? Now this leads us to one last point on the topic of Nisayon, because all the rabbis agree that the greatest Nisayon was the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. Hashem tells Avram, you have to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and offer him up. This is considered the greatest Nisayon. The fact that Avram stood up to this test is unbelievable. Rav Chaim of Alajin in the Ruach HaChaim, Rav Chaim Alajin was the student par excellence of the Vilna Gaon, towering scholar and, and, and a mystic and a Kabbalist. He asks a famous question. He says, why is the Akedah, why is the Binding of Isaac such a big deal? Think about how many Jews through how many millennium had to go through the exact same test. They had to be willing to give their lives, their children's lives. Why is this such a great test, right? The reason that this is such a great test as Rav Chaim is because all of the other tests of Avraham, even though they demanded that he step outside his character, there was still mm. an element of chesed, of loving kindness to them. Even when Avraham was fighting a war, he was fighting a war to redeem his nephew. So that's an act of chesed, of loving kindness. When he sort of has to escort Ishmael out of his house, which is antithetical to everything he believed in, because he was a person of chesed, of loving kindness, he was still doing a chesed to future generations of Jews, understanding that there was certain influence that had to be taken out of the house. But when he gets to the binding of Isaac, that's an action that's not only beyond any possible perception of chesed, of loving kindness, it also made no sense to him. Hashem comes to Avram and says, I want you to take your son and offer him up. Avram should say to God, that makes no sense. You promised me that through Yitzchak would be, would, would be the future of the Jewish people. Not only that, what was Avram's raison d'etre? He was trying to stop paganism. He, he was, he was a, a, a vociferous opponent of, of child sacrifice. And, and in that context, Hashem says to him, now I want you to sacrifice your child. That Avram was willing to do this, which was antithetical to everything he believed in. This wasn't just beyond his character. This was beyond his belief. He had to put his entire belief system on the side. How could a person do that? Only if it, he believes it's what Hashem asks of him. Right? Nisayon is the ability to recognize 
that what we choose to do in this world, we do because it's what Hashem asks of us. And this brings us back to our current situation. There is something so holy and so unholy all at the same time about what's happening there in Israel, right? You know, there was a perception for a long time that maybe you could live with them. Maybe you could live with them. And I'm not going to get into the politics, although afterwards in the q and I'm, I'm happy to comment. But, you know, let the money from Qatar come in. Let the Hamas do well economically. Let them remain in control. And we'll buy ourselves time, whatever. You know, they'll learn to live with us. We'll, okay, so they hate us. They shoot a missile occasionally. I don't think people understood who we were dealing with. Um, now the mask is off. It's clear that this is an entity you cannot live with. Now it goes against everything that we are to do what we're doing now. To, to bomb places in Aza that have to mean killing civilians because Hamas won't let them out. Their command center is in the Shifa Hospital, which is the largest, it's one of the largest hospitals in the Middle East. And the only way to take out the command center is to take out part of the hospital. That goes against the grain of the Israeli army. But if you believe that that's the right thing to do, if, and only if you believe it's what Hashem is asking you to do, and I don't envy the ones who have to make that decision, then maybe that's exactly what you have to do. That is the lesson that we learned from Abraham. Chesed in and of itself is not the ultimate. It's a vehicle that Hashem gives us. And, and figuring out what Hashem wants of us is probably one of the great challenges of our human existence. So that's the story of Avraham. You know, um, there's a lot of discussion about why the stall, why hasn't Israel really gotten in yet now that they finally started to go in uh, I've been listening to different podcasts say that, you know, Bibi Netanyahu was pressured by the president or, you know, they're 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 trying to negotiate for the hostages. I just don't see it that way. I think that that Israel made a terrible error. They underestimated Hamas. They were caught with their pants down. They can't afford to have that happen twice. And they're determined that if they're going to do this, they're going to do it responsibly and slowly. And I've been watching the troops uh, and the amount of training that they're going through the infrastructure that they're developing. Um, there have been missions in and out of Aza for at least a week now. Um, I know this personally from whatever people I know. Um, there was a much more intense um, entry incursion into Aza on Friday night over Shabbat. This is not yet the full-scale attack. Um, you'll notice I'm not calling it an invasion, by the way, because an invasion means I'm entering somebody else's territory. I don't think that territory belongs to them to begin with. Um, and, and this is gradually going to escalate. And the more it escalates and the longer it lasts, the more we're being called on to do things which go against our grain. And that's what makes this an Isayon, which doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But that's Avram. Then comes Yitzchak. Now, Yitzchak is a very different energy from Avram. Where Avram is the beginning, Yitzchak is carrying it through. Right? Uh, Every experience in life has three parts. The first part is the beginning. Like, for example, in the creation of life. Rav Dessler talks about this. A man and a woman come together. It's a beautiful moment. It's a tremendous mitzvah, but it's a moment. And, 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 and it's exciting, and it's beautiful, and it's passionate. And then a woman is impregnated, hopefully, with a seed that begins to grow. And then comes, and that's Avram, right? This, this, this powerful beginning, this excitement. Then comes Yitzchak. Right? Unlike Avram, right? Avram is digging wells, he's fighting wars. Yitzchak never fights a war. The only wells he digs are the wells that his father digs, that he redigs. He renames the wells, the names that his father gave them, like Beersheba. His job is basically to carry this moment of fertility to gestation, to, to, to fruition. He is the long nine, ten months of pregnancy. There's not a lot of glory in it. It's not exciting. But it's taking the beginning of a process and putting in the work, which is very often quiet and persevering, to see it to the end. And we're going to enter that stage. We're still in the stage of the beginning. There's a lot going on, and people want to go into Aza, and people want it to go slowly or go quickly, whatever. What happens after a week or two or three? This is not a, I mean, again, you know, I'm not sitting in the leadership of the country. I hope that they're smart enough to understand where this has to go. My sense from everything I'm hearing is that they are, at least for now. Um, this is not a, a two-week war. This is months and months. 
This is going into Aza quadrant by quadrant, block by block, tunnel by tunnel. This is months, if not years. And, you know, when the dust settles, um, you know, one of the questions that pundits are starting to ask is, so what happens, even assuming that Israel goes in and Israel takes over Aza, but what happens the next day? Who's going to take over? I was listening to a, um, a, a, a Katave, a reporter from Yediot Achronot in a, um, Avi Scharoff was on a podcast. Some of you may have heard of Barry Weiss. Uh, she has a podcast called, uh, I think, Honestly. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent podcast and she's clearly very pro-Israel. And so he was being interviewed and he was talking about, like, we don't want to be in Aza. The Egyptians don't want Aza. Do we let the Palestinian Authority go into Aza? And I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a serious error in judgment. I think that's what got us here to begin with. It doesn't matter whether you want to be in Aza or not. You're fighting evil. You don't have a choice. Putting the Palestinian Authority into Aza is just kicking the can down the road all over again. So, so I think what's going to be challenging is the stage of Yitzchak. It's it's months, it's years, it's a long haul. You know, the only real way to fix this problem is to take over the schools, and that's Yitzchak. And then comes Yaakov. And Yaakov, Yaakov is Tiferet. Yaakov is the synthesis of the beginning, the initial sort of spark of Avran, the long period of gestation of, 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 of work of Yitzchak. And the two of them together, right, that produce ultimately a child that comes into the world. And it's interesting, in the world of Yaakov, it always gets worse before it gets better. Right there's there's if, if if somebody from outer space landed on Earth and saw a woman giving birth, they would think she was dying. They would think that it was terrible. And one minute it is, and then all of a sudden, in a moment, everything changes, and the baby is born. And everybody's smiling, and they well, they don't hand out cigars anymore. Perrier water, right? And I wonder if we're if we're seeing that. This has been a seventy-five year journey, and it's been a long haul. And maybe I hope this is. You know, Chevle Mashiach. Maybe these are the the birth pangs before something very different is born. Uh, it's clear that we're going through a watershed experience. The reality in the Middle East, never mind in Israel, is going to be very different when the dust settles on this conflict. That's my opinion. Uh, how different it will be will depend on a whether we're worthy of it and whether we put the work in. So that's the first sort of piece uh, when it comes to Yaakov. Uh, the second piece when it comes to Yaakov, is that, you know, Yaakov is the Akev. He is sort of crushed under the heel of Yaakov. He's born second, but he ultimately becomes Yisrael. Because you have struggled, you have fought and overcome, you know, giants and gods and, and whatnot. And I think there too, we're going to enter the stage of Yaakov. This is going to get worse before it gets better. So that's the short version of sort of maybe a little background. Um, I do think the fact that this began in Simcha Torah is not an accident. Some of us have spoken about this before. Simcha is really, joy is all about purpose, right? Um, that's why the mitzvah of occurs on the festival of Sukkot in the Torah, not earlier, because at the end of the harvest, the whole thing makes sense, right? When you stand under the chuppah, sameach to sameach, there's so much joy. Because all of a sudden, the long journey of all the different people you met and all the struggles you had, they all make sense. You found what you were looking for. So what does it mean, Simchat Torah? It means that we discover the true purpose of Torah. That, that we understand that our purpose is connected to Torah. Right? That there's a, a blessing that we say regularly, but we take it for granted. This is the blessing that you say when you go up to the Torah. Right? That God has chosen us from amongst all the nations. In the morning, in the morning blessings, this is part of Birchas Torah. This is part of the blessing over Torah study, right? Right? People misunderstand the concept of chosenness. They assume that because we're the chosen people, it somehow means that we're better than anybody else. I don't believe that's true. Even though in current circumstances, I think it's safe to say that we're a better people than Hamas, but that's another discussion, right? To be chosen, everybody's chosen. Shem created all of us, Jews and non-Jews. The question is what we're chosen for. We have a purpose. And the Jewish people have their purpose. And their purpose, right, is to be a light unto the nations, to be an Orla Guim. That's what the Pasuk, that's what Ishael says. 
So if we're supposed to be a light into the nation, supposed to create a model, model society, how do you do that? How do you know what that society is? That's Torah. Shem gave us a recipe, how to create a better world, how to be a model for what a world can be. We're not supposed to, we're not proselytizers. We're not interested in, 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 in pontificating to the nations. We want to demonstrate how the world could be. And by the way, those who are our sworn enemies are threatened by that because they don't want that world. And that's exactly what's going on now. So Simcha Torah is the ability to understand that our true purpose is connected to Torah. And I wonder, you know, if if somehow when we don't get that, Hashem sends us a reminder, but that would be a little beyond sort of the purview of, of this class. So that's a little bit of food for thought um, on, on the topic of, um, of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and how it relates to what's going on now. I thought, I mean, I, this could easily be a longer shear. I actually prefer to just open up the floor to any questions. I guess the easiest way to do this is to type your question in the chat, but you can also... You know, I set the setting so whoever speaks first will turn yellow so you can try that as well. Just, you know, anything on your mind about what's going on in Israel, where this is going, what's happening on the ground, etc. I think these days the ability to sort of be connected um, and, uh, you know, across the miles, give each other strength, I think is an important uh, facet. Um, you know, some of the stories, all of the stories that have been coming out of Kfar Aza and Be'eri and Alumim and all these different places from Simchat Torah in those first few days are almost too horrendous to describe. Um, and uh, I, I think it's been tough for us as a people. I, I do want to tell you, at least here in Israel, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable to see how in the space of a few hours, people just instinctively understood we got to put aside our differences. You know, and, and as 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 overwhelming and devastating as October 7th was, the 9th, 10th, and 11th were overwhelming in terms of how powerful it was to see Jews be able to do that. The judicial reform went into the cubby and, and, and the debates about the government and about blame went into the, in, into the drawer. And people just put aside their differences, you know, no matter what background you come from, um, dancing, singing, doing chesed, delivering food, taking care of families, it, it's really been remarkable. Um, you know, some of what the, the Oraita boys have been doing, it, it's just inspiring. So both sides of that double-edged sword here. So anything that's on your mind, any questions you may have, um, if you're curious. Avram yes. uh, had a similar situation. He, they, kidna he, they kidnapped Sarah and he had to end I think Lot Lot also, and he had to fight to get him back. Right. It's interesting you mentioned that. You know, there are two separate stories of Avram's wife Sarah being kidnapped. The first occurs um, in Egypt. Paro takes Sarah, or more aptly, his servants take Sarah and bring them to Paro. And the second occurs with Avimelech. Which, interestingly enough, is also the first time you find the concept of tefillah, right? And the Rabbeinu Yonah, and I believe also the Bartanura, list both of those kidnappings as two separate tests of Avram. So the obvious question is, if, if his wife was kidnapped and he overcame this and, and stood up to it and whatever happened there, then why was did it happen again and why was it a separate test? So one of the opinions is, that even though the actions were the same, the motivation was completely different. The first kidnapping was in Mitzrayim, was in Egypt. Chazal tell us that Egypt was shatuf bezima; it was immersed in sexual immorality. They lusted after Sarah. She was this incredibly beautiful woman, right? Avram says, right? Atayadati I see how beautiful you are, right? Imri na tell him you're my sister. He understands that they'll kill him for her because they lust after beautiful women. So that was a, 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 a transgression of lust. The second story, where, Avra, where Avimelech kidnaps um, uh, Sarah, and again, if we had time, we could go into the linguistics there. You can look it up yourself, and once you're looking for it, you'll see it, was actually not a hate of lust. Um, Avimelech kidnaps Sarah because she's from Avram's family. The victim in the second story is not Sarah. It's Avram. 
he wants to have power over Avram. And by holding his wife, he thinks that he'll have control. It, 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 it's a transgression of, of control. Those are two very different issues. And it's interesting that in looking at what's going on today, I think the same challenge exists. In order to understand how to deal with our enemies, we have to understand what motivates them. I mean, I think that's been one of the challenges that we have that, you know, we sometimes ascribe Western perceptions to, you know, Middle Eastern religions and cultures that have a very different view of things. And I could expand on this if you want, but, um, but, but I, um, um, anyway, what else is on your mind? If there is anything on your mind, that's okay if there isn't. <laughs> No, you're all quiet. You're uh, you're talked out. Please expound on what. The the difference between United uh, Western and uh, Mid East um, mores when it terms uh, in terms of uh, kidnapping and agendas. Ah, okay. Um, look, I mean, there are many examples, but but I'll give you an example. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to. First of all, it's easy with hindsight to look at things and and see them as flawed. It's challenging when when you saw how flawed they were while they were happening. Right? I'll give you an example. Um, so. Gilad Shalit was held captive for five years. We released over a thousand terrorists, some of them really hardened criminals. And the leadership of Hamas today are basically those, Yichir Sinwar, who's the head of Hamas, was sitting in an Israeli prison and they let him go to get Shalit, Gilad Shalit back. Um, and I remember, you know, this discussion came up then. I was personally vehemently against that um, prisoner exchange. And not because I didn't value a Jewish life and a soldier. I just thought it was a, it was bad on two fronts. It was bad because you're telling the enemy, you're giving the enemy a message that, uh, you know, this works. If, you know, if a thousand prisoners get released because you stole a soldier, then of course they're going to keep trying to kidnap people. By the way, it, 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 it is almost impossible to imagine that that thought was not in their minds when they kidnapped hundreds of Israelis. You know, if they get a thousand terrorists free because they took one soldier, can you imagine what they're going to get for 200? And that's what gives Yichia Sinwar sort of the ability to say, you know, if you release all the Palestinian prisoners, we'll give you back the hostages. And putting aside what the answer to that question is, because I actually don't struggle with what the answer is. I just think it's a very painful answer. Um, their interpretation of that, so that's the first issue, is they view this completely differently. Second is, their interpretation of that is weakness. Whenever you do things that are interpreted by the Arab world as weak, you bring upon yourself more violence. That's just the way they work. It's a different philosophy. Um, you know, I'll give you another example. Uh, the things that deter the Muslim fundamentalist are, are not the things that we think of. They're not deterred by death. They value death. Uh, dying as a shaheed is a gift. Not everybody wants to, but that doesn't deter them. And there are things that deter them. And if you're curious, I'm happy to expand on those too. I think land. I think they understand land. And I, I wonder if someone in the Israeli command is starting to realize that because they're pushing an enormous population of Palestinians southward. Um, if you know sort of the map in Aza, Gaza City, which is really the center of Hamas control. You know, when you heard stories about how they, the coup in 2007 and they overtook the Palestinian Authority and they threw, you know, some of the upper uh, um, echelon of, of the PA out of windows of the 11th floor, that building is in Aza City. Um, and all the northern camps, Jibalia, Betlahia, um, uh, Sajia, these are, these are massively populated. Um, the majority of the population of Aza is in the north. And the majority of the infrastructure of Hamas is in the north. So they're pushing all the Palestinians southward. Um, and most people assume that that's because 
you know, this way they'll have less civilians to deal with and they can better deal with the terrorists and there'll be less images. But there's still three, four hundred thousand civilians in northern Gaza. I don't think that's I think they're doing it for a second reason. I think I hope that they want to sort of when the dust settles, that they don't let those million people back into the north um, and they create a security swath of land in between southern Israel, Ashkelon, Ashdod, etc., and Aza, so that when the dust settles, they've paid a serious price for this event, right? Beyond sort of what happens to Hamas itself. Um, that would be something they would understand. And I, I think it behooves us, you know, to realize, by the way, in terms of negotiating with hostages, it's a difficult thing to say. You cannot win. I'm putting aside whether you can negotiate with people who are such animals. I don't believe there's any point in negotiating with such people. Um, but if you did want to negotiate, that's not the language they understand. Right? The language they understand is, you know, more and more loss until you give back. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, Zach Baumol was a prisoner who was missing in action for 37 years. He was taken by the Imam militia and then eventually by Syria. Um, and I became close with his family because he was a friend of mine in Gush. Um, did a lot over the years to try to help them. And I remember once having a discussion with Yona Baumol. And this was around the time of the Jubilee. The first big hostage release uh, exchange uh, was not Gilad Shalit. It was the Jibril exchange. In, two, in uh, 1984, we released a thousand prisoners, uh, mostly um, um, Fatah, uh, who were captured in the Lebanon war for six Israelis, three living and three dead. Arya Lieberman, um, um, Chazishai, et cetera. These were boys who were taking the war. And there was a big debate about it back then, but at least there they were prisoners. They weren't all terrorists, but okay. And um, and I remember Yona said to me, this is a big mistake. He said, you know who got this right? The Russians, right? There was a period in the early 80s where there were a lot of kidnappings going on in Beirut and in Lebanon. Some of you may remember that they kidnapped Terry Anderson. He was a priest. He was held in a dark room for three years with a bag over his head chained to a wall in human conditions. He went a little dinky down when he was finally released. During that period of time, um, the, um, I think it was the PFLP, kidnapped a Russian diplomat. The very next day, the Russians kidnapped two higher ups from the PFLP and they sent a box to their offices, the PLFP offices. And in the box were two fingers and two ears and a note that said, every single day until our diplomat is released, you're going to get more body parts. When we're done with these two bodies, we'll kidnap four more. The next day, this diplomat was released. You know, the Egyptians. Some of you may remember that the first intifada started in December of 1987. It was a truck. It ran into some Palestinians. It was an Israeli truck in Aza. It ran into some Arabs. You know, there was a big, you know, to-do. Later, we found out that Arafat had engineered all of this and riots spread all across the, all across the, the, the Yudava Shamran, Aza, the whole area. And the Israeli army wasn't ready for it. And, you know, how do we deal with this? And riot police and plastic bullets and rubber bullets. And you can't shoot a civilian, et cetera. And, and I'm not debating that, you know, I'm happy that we're an ethical army. Well, these riots spread through Rafiach. Now, Rafiach, which is at the southern tip of the Gaza Strip, um, is actually divided. There's a border that runs through the city of Rafiach. Um, Northern Rafiach is in Israeli territory, and Southern Rafiach is in Egyptian territory. And so the riots spread to Egypt in Rafiach. Well, the Egyptians had a very different response. They sent in one armored personnel carrier with live ammo. They drove through the sheets, through the streets, and they basically mowed down civilians. They killed over 30 people in about an hour. That was the end of the Intifada in Rafiah. It was over. Now, you could say, like, that's barbarian and we don't do that. But, you know, five, six years later, after a thousand Arabs are dead in the Israeli Intifada and only 30 died, you kind of wonder about that. You know, I mean, Egypt may not want the refugees, but if we figured out a way for them to get into Egyptian territory, Egypt would know how to deal with them. So that's a whole interesting discussion, but they have a different view. And until we understand that view, and by the way, something that we've um, that we've spoken about before, and this is the thing that bothered me most about um, uh, you know the different podcasts that I'm hearing. Um, 
putting aside, you know, whether you could whether you could give this over to the Palestinian Authority. I mean, this is this is an entity that supports terror. So if you if you if you choose the lesser of two evils again, we're just kicking the can down the street. We're going to be struggling with this again in five years. Makes no sense to me. So what is the solution? Well, the problem with the solution is it's very hard. And people don't want to have to deal with what's hard. The reason we didn't go back into Aza and stay in Aza, we pulled out of Gush Katif and out of Hevel Aza in 2005. And it really started earlier than that. And the basic premise was, we'll give them land, maybe we'll get peace. At a certain point, we needed to learn that that didn't work, and Israel should have gone back in. Why did we not want to go back in? Because we didn't want to pay the price. We didn't want to pay the price in terms of soldiers' lives, in terms of the challenge of an ongoing, you know, sort of managing a Palestinian population, and so on and so forth. So because we didn't want to pay that price the last 15 years, um, the average um, was somewhere between 8 and 12 soldiers were being killed a year. Well, there's almost 350 soldiers that were killed in three days. So what did we gain? Now, you can make a case for saying you have to take risks for peace. And you can't blame somebody for trying. You cannot say that now. Now that we've learned this terrible lesson, if we repeat it, that's even worse. So the only solution is you have to, you have to find the root of the problem. The root of the problem is education. You know, my daughter had a chilling comment. We were sitting at the Shabbos table a week after this all began. She said, you know what really kills me? And I should say, by the way, that my daughter, you know, her husband is in the army. He's a deputy commander in a very elite unit. Uh, his phone obviously is now taken away from him and he's God knows where. And, uh, you know, in the Aza area. And this is terrifying. Right. And so she said, you know, back in Suketan in, and, and in, in, in Cass Lead, which was 2008. So Israel bent over backwards not to kill kids and to make sure they were out of harm's way. Well, all those 10-year-olds that we worried about, those are the terrorists who marched into, in, into, into Beiri and, and, and near Oz and, and, and Kfar Aza and so on and so forth. Because for the last 14, 15 years, they've been educating them to hate. So unless we figure out how to change their educational system and take it over, it doesn't matter what we do. The same thing's going to happen with a different uh, political entity in 10 or 15 years. That is an amazing amount of work. That's a very, very hard journey. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of kids in Aza. It's 30, 40,000 schools. It, it, it's 100, 200,000 teachers. And they have to speak Arabic and they have to understand the Arab mindset. And they have to educate them over years towards peace and, and, and healthy democratic values. That's a 30-year project. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars if you can even find the manpower to do that. That is the only possible solution that would allow sort of a Gaza Strip that is populated by Arabs, the potential for being democratic and healthy and so on and so forth. If one doesn't see that happening, and I don't, then there is only one other solution and nobody wants to talk about it. We can't live with them. You can't live with people who do this. You just can't. It's horrible to say. It's heartbreaking. And, and I've been talking to friends who are as left wing as they get, and they're just they're devastated. Because their dream just went up in smoke. Tough times. Very tough Rabbi, times. Rabbi. Yeah. Is, is Hamas Amalek? No, Hamas is not Amalek, but Hamas is Ishmael. And that's actually, I'm debating, uh, you know, every Thursday night I give a shiur to Raita. Um, two weeks ago was Noach. And we spoke about, um, you know, when God says enough is enough. That's a pretty obvious topic. Uh, sometimes you have to destroy the world. Uh, Lech Lecha was all about what we spoke about before, about uh, Avram being an Ivri. Um, I think the next topic is who is Yishmael? The Torah tells us Yishmael is Pere Adam, is a, is a wild animal. Um, but there is a glimmer of hope because when Avram dies, he is buried. It says, His children bury him together. And Rashi notes that Yitzchak is mentioned first, even though Yishmael is older. Yishmael and Yitzchak have a form of a rapprochement, which may even be that Yishmael recognizes that Yitzchak is the true inheritor of Avraham, and they learn to live together. And there are commentaries who say there will come a time when, when, when Yitzchak and Yishmael, when the Jewish people and the Arabs, will learn to live together. The mission, by the way, of Yishmael, according to the Pritzadik, who was of Tzadok Akon of Lublin, 
who was, among other things, a Hasidic mystic. He says, every nation has its purpose. He says, what's the purpose of Yishmael? He says, Yishmael has two purposes. The first is like its name, Yishmael. They are meant to spread monotheism in the world. We're meant to be a model of how a monotheistic society works. They're meant to bring monotheism to the world. And they're doing a pretty good job. Right? Islam is not idolatrous. You can walk into a mosque, not a problem. There are 1.2 billion Muslims in the world. Their second role, and this is a chilling comment, is that when the Jewish people in Israel don't understand their role, Yishmael is meant to come and remind us. And that is exactly what they're doing. Now, I'm not one to say X happened because of Y. I think, uh, you know, those are prophetic boots and I don't know how to fill those. But I, I don't, just like I... Just like I don't think that you can say that the state of Israel happened because of the Holocaust, I also don't think you can say that the Holocaust and the state of Israel, which are the two most significant events in Jewish history of the last 2,000 years, occurred three years apart, that that would be an accident. That would also boggle my mind. The fact that after such a horrible year of divisiveness and, and, and angst and, and, and tension and brother fighting against brother, that this happens is not an accident. And I hope that we'll get the message. And, and what you're seeing now in Israel is the antidote to that. So Yishmael is not a Malik. That being said, Salvechik once said that anytime a nation rises up against us to destroy us simply because we're Jews, they carry the seed of a Malik. There's an energy of a Malik. Maybe a Malikites married into Yishmael, if you want to take it literally, maybe on a mystical level, they carry the energy of a Malik. And Rav Salvechik believed that that was the case, by the way, halakhically, and therefore the mitzvah to destroy this entity um, exists, you know. Um, is judicial reform dead? Nobody's talking about it. Uh, I don't think judicial reform is dead, but I think it's going to take a while for it to be put back on the table. And I think that's good. Uh, there is something wrong with, you know, the way the Supreme Court system works between the Judiciary Committee and how it's chosen and between the, you know, sort of how far-reaching the, 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 the judicial revolution that Aaron Barak uh, started has gone. And I think there's legitimate questions. I'd like to believe that the leadership at some point in the future will say, okay, that was too much, but clearly the majority of the country wants some sort of reform. Let's find a compromise. By the way, I think what was holding up that compromise, and you could agree or disagree with this, I could, I, I could easily present both sides of this coin. What was really holding up that compromise was sort of the relationship that a significant portion of the anti-reform group has with Bibi Netanyahu. They could not imagine compromising with Bibi Netanyahu. And uh, I, my gut tells me that when the dust settles here, I think Bibi Netanyahu has danced his last dance. If he was smart, he would stand up and say, I'm going to resign after this war is over. Let's win this war and then I'll resign. I don't think he'll do that, but, you know. And by the way, it's not because I don't think I mean, he did a lot of great things as a prime minister, but for various reasons, he's no longer capable of leading the country in a unified fashion, sadly. So, um, do you think there is anything we can do as individuals from overseas to help the hostage situation? Davin, you know, you have to understand, it's like it's like negotiating with Adolf Hitler. I mean, there's a there's a well-known story of Joel Roth who tried to negotiate with Eichmann. You can't negotiate with Nazis. You can't trust them. You can't trust the the, the, the the paper that they sign. There's nothing to talk about. They're animals. So like, and I don't, I, I have no anger in me. Like I just, that's who they are. So it pains me because there are 200, there are more than 200. I think it's now up to 229 hostages um, whose families have been notified. Um, the best thing we can do for them um, is take over Aza block by block, tunnel by tunnel, and make them pay a price. Now, the problem is we've already said we're going to destroy them, so they have nothing to lose. But what are you going to say? You're going to give, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to give up 3,000 terrorists? I mean, we did that once. We saw what disaster that produced. So I don't think most, except for the hostages family, and my heart goes out to them, the majority of Israel's population has no interest in doing that. That that ship has sailed. Even if you could trust Hamas to live up to some sort of a deal, which none of us do, right? So if there was a way to release 3,000 hostages and put a little bomb inside their brains that blew up 24 hours later, fine. That I would do, but I don't know that we have that technology. 
I just think, you know, I, I do know that there are things going on in Aza from a military perspective. Um, I think they're going to find some of them. I think they're going to rescue some of them. And sadly, I hope I'm wrong, we'll probably lose some of them, just like we're going to lose some soldiers, Lola So we have to hope for the best, and maybe Hashem will bring us miracles. Um, you know, we have to earn those miracles. And we don't earn it by fighting with each other. We earn it by what we're doing now. So let's keep doing that and, and loving each other and putting aside our differences. And, you know, by the way, this might be an uncomfortable thing for some people to hear. Um, but I'm going to say it like I think it is, and you can decide what to do with this. Um, in Jewish history, every place that has been our home, or we thought was our home, eventually got rid of us. Um, you know, even even Bavel, Babylon, which was a home to the Jewish people for centuries, eventually Jews were forced to leave, right? So I wonder if that's what's happening in America. In other words, if you're looking at it from a purely religious perspective and you're looking in the Torah, Hashem is, I mean, the Torah is pretty clear as to where we belong. It's not in New Jersey or, 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 or Florida. It's in Israel. And, you know, Hashem after 1948 said, it's time to come home. And he gave us a state. And I have tremendous gratitude to America for its support for Israel and certainly to the American Jewish community and the Canadian Jewish community because they've been, I mean, so much they've done for the Jewish people. But maybe it's time to start thinking about coming home. Maybe America really isn't our home. Now, do I think there are going to be pogroms like what we saw in Aza? And make no mistake about it, that was a pogrom. In in Houston next week? No, I don't think so. At least that's my sense. Um, it is becoming increasingly increasingly difficult on campuses. I'm told, you know, we have a lot of students uh, on campuses across the states, certainly on the Eastern Seaboard. And I'm hearing from them some pretty disturbing things. I mean, that I never imagined I would hear that boys are nervous about walking around on pen. That's unbelievable to me, right? Um, but if you ask me whether I think uh, our grandchildren would be safe growing up in America, I don't think you can take that for granted anymore. And that should give us pause. And I wonder what would happen if the Jewish community in America just got up and came home. What would that do? What would that do to Hamas? What would that do in terms of the world? What would that do mystically? So that's something to think about. It's easy for me to say because I'm already here, right? What else is on your mind? Have any of the Shiva boys gone home? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, some Yeshiva, first of all, there are, there are three programs that I know of that actually had to close down, sadly. Uh, very sad. Um, I heard a fourth is really struggling now, but I don't know how that's going. Um, I, I don't know what the averages are. I know of programs uh, that have really been struggling. Um, in Oraita, we had this year 72, it ended up being, I think, 73 first-year boys and 10 second-year boys plus a few more in Elul. Um, so of those, call it 85, 10 went back to the States. Uh, one of them came back tonight. He's back in Israel tonight. Another one is coming back tomorrow. And that's the product of a lot of discussions, Zooms with parents. I just, before we started this class, I started, I was on a Zoom with parents. Um, I also think we're lucky to have a tremendous parent body. Um, I'm sure it must be very difficult to have your kids so far away with all the news. Um, but uh, I honestly think Yerushalayim is the safest place for a Jew today in the world. I can't think of a place I'd rather be, but that's just me. So... Rabbi, what's the response to the uh, heredity community to the situation in terms of young men enlisting in the IDF? Look, they're getting a lot of good press, and so they should. Um, the leaders of those communities are staying quiet because they don't want to encourage mass drafts. Uh, but I think they understand that if they speak out against that now, that would not be very good for their community. So they're staying quiet. Um, I'm very, uh, what's the word, uh, encouraged to see a significant portion of, uh, you know, sort of the, the Haredi community realize that uh, we're in a war and we have to contribute. That's good. I think that these seeds have been planted for a long time and they're going to start showing fruition. I think that paradigm is going to change, by the way, little by little. Healthy change comes gradually, but yeah. Um, 
Do I see the seeds of the coming of Mashiach in this situation? I've been seeing the seeds of the coming of Mashiach since I was born. I mean, the state of Israel, the Six-Day War, 39 scuds fell in 1990 in the heart of Tel Aviv's, in the, in the most populous region in Israel, and, and nothing is unbelievable. I mean, they're, you know, we, we say in the Shemona Esrei, in the, in the, one of the silent prayers, blessings, on the miracles that are with us every day. They're all around us. So, yeah, the question is, do we merit it? Are we earning it? That's also another interesting discussion. What does that even mean? What is the Mashiach? What would life look like? You know, in a, in a, I don't personally believe, I know there are different opinions among the authorities. I don't think that when Mashiach comes that we're going to experience some sort of miraculous, you know, I think the Rambam speaks to me the most. It's going to be a gradual process. You know, the first stage of Mashiach is that a leader will rise up who is such an incredible human being and such an ethical person that the entire Jewish people will follow him. Right, that that all the rabbis will get behind him. That would be such a miracle. That alone would be Mashiach. And when you have such a person who's this tremendously respected leader, uh, in my mind, in order for the Haredi uh, world and the Datilum world to support him, he'd have to be a religious person. But he'd have to be so ethical and such a fine human being that everybody supported him. I think personally in Israel he would have had to done the army. Um, you know, that's a step. We're not there yet. We're not even close to being there, but we'll get there. Um, am I encouraging students to not go to certain universities? Oh, listen, I, I, it's not our job. You know, it's a very delicate time when a boy is 18 or 19 and he comes to Israel for a year. Um, and sometimes his rebellion are like larger than life. I, I, I don't think that's a healthy way to go about things, to try to encourage a student to do this or that. Our job is to get them to think. We don't really have to do a lot. These boys are doing that all on their own. They're very bright kids, at least in our yeshiva. And if you're going to NYU or Penn or, or Cornell, and we have students going there, you know, we got into a really deep discussion about this the other night. Um, you know, and I said, I'm, I'm, because I had gotten into Columbia many years ago, but never went because I ended up in Israel in the army. And I said something I thought I would never say that I'm proud not to be a Columbia alumni. And that started a whole discussion. And I said, look, it's not for me to judge. I don't know. Maybe if a person says to me, I'm going back to NYU because I think it's important that a Jewish voice be heard on campus. It doesn't matter whether I agree or disagree with that. That's a reasonable sort of reason to go back to NYU. You know, on the other hand, I, I think when you make compromises with what you know inherently to be unethical, you take a big risk. You know, I have a lot of respect for those donors who've just pulled their donations. I watched a five-minute interview that David Megerman had, I think, on CNN. You know, and they asked him what he hopes to accomplish with the fact that he wrote this letter. And if you haven't seen it, you can look it up online. Um, he wrote this letter to the, uh, the board and I think the president of Penn. And so he was asked on CNN, what does he hope to accomplish? He said, I'm not trying to accomplish anything. I'm just telling them. I, I don't think they're going to change. I don't think that their values are my values anymore. I don't want to support them. You know, I, I don't, I, I think there's a, there's a certain maybe perspective or group that thinks that we can somehow influence these universities and get them back on track. I, I don't think so. This education, you know, who these people are now, the, the, the political correctness that we've been experiencing for so long has undermined the educational motif, the theme, the, 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 the directions, the goals of many of these universities, or at least some of the, I mean, you have professors saying they're exhilarated and they're not being fired. That just says something about a university. I wonder whether the, the bigger question I have is for the parents. Do you want your kids educated by those professors for four years? Do you want them exposed to that? Is that a healthy place for a person to be? I don't know. I, I'd like to see the American Jewish community vote with their feet. And say, you know what, we're going to send our kids to Israel and they're going to study in IDC, Hebrew U, Barilan. They're going to pay half the tuition, get a better education, in my opinion, certainly from a perspective of morality and ethics. I don't know. Anyway, we unfortunately have to step off because uh, I have a group of students that are waiting for me on a Zoom. Um, but uh, I, I just uh, I really want to thank you all for calling in. Um, I hope, um, oh, why did Hamas release four of the hostages? 
they are trying to delay the inevitable. If they lease two here and then two there, um, then it makes, uh, they think it makes certain uh, forces in Israel say, well, let's push off the ground incursion another week, another week, another week, um, which I think is a big mistake because I think Hamas is playing with us and it's psychological manipulation. Um, I don't think they intend to release all the hostages for all the Palestinians. I think if we called their bluff, which I don't think we should do, uh, you would find that out. I think we just under, have to understand who we're dealing with. These people are evil and we shouldn't care what they do. We should do what we need to do and uh, be sure that this never happens again. You know, I think so. Anyway, thank you very much, everybody. And uh, I, uh, I hope we get to do this again soon. Uh, in Israel, over a cup of coffee on the roof of Oraita. Come visit us. You would be surprised. Uh, somebody sent me a WhatsApp tonight. A neighbor, actually. Is it safe to walk around the Rova? Oh, my gosh. There is so much. You are so safe in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem now. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I walked down the Mamila uh, Mall. There were more security there than there were tourists. It's unbelievable. So really, come visit. Make a demonstration. I'm waiting for the missions to start coming. We love you all. We miss you all. Look forward to seeing you, God willing, soon in Israel. And we should know more peaceful times. And uh, maybe just take a moment to, to think about the families of the hostages and the missing and and the the, 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 the wounded and our soldiers. They should all come home safe, Bezrat Hashem, soon. Laila Tov, everybody. Thanks for calling in. I love you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Amen. Thank you.